looking at the images that have come out over the last few weeks, images of police violence and protest, it's impossible not to think how similar they are to pictures we saw just a few years back in Ferguson, Missouri. Only this time, Ferguson is everywhere. And now, journalists who cut their teeth covering the killing of Michael Brown are in positions of authority at national news organizations. They are helping shape the conversation Americans are having about equal justice and police brutality. Because of all that, we wanted to listen back to an interview I did last year with Slate's Joel Anderson. In Ferguson, he found himself in harm's way, targeted by the police. It's an eerie echo of the images we're seeing right now. Journalists being arrested on live television, tear-gassed. I asked Joel to come on the show and tell me what it was like on the ground in Ferguson. I asked him to tell me about his worst night. One note before we start, this episode has some pretty rough language in it, including a racial slur. We've kept that language intact to preserve how people felt in the moment. I'm going to start out by saying the worst night in Ferguson is a really subjective thing. But when I asked Joel Anderson about his worst night, he knew exactly what I meant. You summed it up in this one tweet on your timeline that I cannot read aloud, but maybe you would. Mm. Mm. Oh, is that the one with the slur? Yeah. Joel was a reporter at BuzzFeed back then. He'd just flown in to cover the reaction to Michael Brown's death. Yeah, so I sent this tweet. I remember I was in my hotel room watching the press conference. I'd finally gotten home, and I I tweeted out, Pardon me in my language, but I've never felt more like a nigger than I did tonight. Oof. Yeah. Joel flew into Ferguson, expecting to write about a community in recovery. A few days before he got there, a gas station had been set on fire in the wake of the Michael Brown shooting. And by the time he arrived, that burnt-out lot was filled with kids dancing. I remember filming that kid uh, breakdancing, and that was in the parking lot, the burnt, the burned out parking lot of that gas station. And it like, it was, al- it was sort of surreal. It was almost corny. It was like, hmm. oh, here's this hope, this youth that's dancing for joy in the burned out remains of you know <laughs> Ferguson, and um, this represents something. And everybody was really happy, and there was music, and people were cooking out. And people were still protesting and no justice, no peace, but it just felt like we were going to really turn a corner. And I I just, I don't think that going into that evening that I could have foreseen that it, it would have gotten as bad as it did. So you had this feeling like, okay, we're turning a corner. Mm-hmm. When did you know that wasn't true? Um... And I think that something happened the second night, and I wish I could remember exactly what it was, but um, it just, like, all of a sudden, the anger took off. For Joel, the worst night was August 17th, 2014. It was a Sunday. Video from earlier in the day shows how the tension was beginning to build. In this tape... Young men surround a cop car that's trying to pass through West Florissant, Ferguson's main drag. They're yelling slurs, tapping on the glass. One of them just 
follows the cops as they roll down the street. He's got his middle finger up. And then a protester approaches, tries to move these guys gently away from the police. He's encouraging them to express themselves, but do it safely. At the same time, there were kids on the street, holding handmade signs and chanting. Joel was watching all of this, keeping his eye on the clock. A curfew was set for midnight. Around nine, he ducked into the local McDonald's to charge his phone. So this is like one place people can get food and it's sort of a community gathering spot. They had chairs in there. It's clean and you can get a Big Mac or whatever. So anyway, I, I just went in there and I was like, well, man, my phone's dying. I need to charge it up because, you know, every night was basically the same for me. You know, I'd be out, take pictures, you know, record some audio, get what I need for whatever story that I'm going to do. And I was like, well, I, I need to charge my phone up. So I go in there and then all of a sudden you just hear a, like a, a crash. Something literally went through the window? Yeah, something went through the window. Window got smashed out. All hell broke loose. Like, people started running and taking off. I was just like, oh, shit, I got to get out of here. First of all, I wanted to find out what it was, right? Um, Reporter's instinct. Yeah, right. I'm just like, what was that? What's going on? And, uh, and nobody could kind of tell it was because it was very, um, you know, it was chaotic. Like, people were trying to get the hell out of there. And I remember walking outside walking or running, uh, and there was a kid on the ground. They were telling somebody to get milk to clear the gas out of his eyes, and that kid was in agony. I'll never forget that. And as I'm there, like, there's police around, and, you know, I'm just like, man, uh, what are we supposed to do? I thought the curfew is at midnight, and um, I haven't done a lot of international traveling, but I know we do the If It Happened Here type series, and... um, I just remember thinking, oh, it feels like I'm in another country or a place where, like, we are absolutely, where the law can't protect you, where there's, there are no rules. Joel ticked through his options. First, there was his rental car. He'd parked it in front of the McDonald's. But when he went back to get it, he realized he was blocked in. Next option, leave on foot but the police were throwing smoke bombs and tear gas. So he asked a cop for help. That cop, man, I just, again, like, it's, it's you're naive. I'm a journalist or whatever, and you're thinking that there's, like, some sort of protection for you. And he's like, well, my advice is you to get the hell out of here. So that's what Joel tried to do. He walked straight down the middle of West Florissant. The sound of the street that night was deafening. A line of police vehicles was forcing protesters down the road, firing flash grenades. But at the other end of the block, Joel says a line of cops was pointing their guns right at him. He felt boxed in. So you're literally being pushed towards a line of officers who are armed. Yes. And they're they're coming down the street at us, the police. They're just gradually moving everybody back, moving the crowd back. And people are running back in panic and... You know, they've got, you know, the tear gas canisters coming. They got the flash bombs coming at us. Well, you sound you sound like, really calm describing it now. And you're talking about how, yeah. like, I was getting videos, getting tweets. But in the mm-hmm. moment, it, it couldn't have felt like you, that. You know, so, yes, it felt terrifying. But also, um, 
this is going to sound stupid. I didn't, and maybe this is just the way I live my life. I didn't actually think something was going to happen to me. You know what I mean? Like, I was just like, well, I'm going to get out of this one way or another. Like, I didn't, it didn't, it, I didn't think I would die. And, in, in, you know, early on at least, right? Um, actually, when my phone died, I was like, oh, God, I am really in trouble now. Like, that, I think mm. that's like when it had registered to me that like, oh, I don't have a, I might not get out of this. I don't have a backup plan. I don't know where anybody is. I'm out here by myself. I'm amidst all these people, but nobody is responsible for me but me. Yeah, you describe this moment of moving through protesters and, and seeing police, and someone decides to break a window. Oh, man. And you're like, don't do that. Yeah. They're going to hurt us. Yeah. Yeah, man. Because, I mean, at this point, it's dark. And the cops have their guns trained on us. And I'm just like, how do you know? It, given everything that's happened tonight, what makes you think that the cops won't shoot us? You know, like I was just so mad at them because I was like, this is so dumb. Like, what do you like? Don't do that right now. Of all, all, of all, like, let's come back and do that another night, you know. But like, why are you doing it right now? It's already terrifying. I think I did. I think I yelled at that kid. I was like, man, what the fuck are you doing? Stop. (laughs) You have this really poignant paragraph in your piece where you talk about the moment you're talking about right now. And you say, by now, no one cared that I was a member of the media. I was just a black man among hundreds of them. I looked at their faces, scanning for anyone I might know. Some of them had tattoos or gold teeth or extravagantly manicured beards. They reminded me of my cousins or friends that I lost touch with. I wonder what the police saw when they looked at these men. Did they bother to look at them in their faces? I wondered if the police could tell any of us apart. Yeah. Oh, man, that graph. Like, um, I'm about to cry reading it, seriously. Like, oh, man. <laughs> you know, actually, it's funny you said that. Because, actually, I, I started... Oh, man, it just it just really... Um, it was just really scary, man. And, um, you know, I just... It's just really tough. Um, it's just really tough to be a black person in that in that sort of a situation because you just you know that man that people are doing the best that they can and that, like you think that man you know you take one of our eighteen year olds away from us like that you know a kid that could have been anything and we don't even have the right to be mad about it you know. Um, it uh, just that night, I'm just like, man, all, all of this is happening because we're mad right now and people are mad right now and um, we're not allowed to be mad. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Imagine that you're Joel on this night. You're in a strange town. The cops are forcing you down the street. You're moving with a group, a bunch of people you don't know. You don't have a car. Your cell phone's dead. At the end of the block, police have shouldered their weapons, and they've got them pointed at you. This is when Joel realized he needed a ride. So I've never hitchhiked in my life. Like, if anybody that knows me, they know I would never, I would never, I don't want to ride in a car with anybody if I don't have to. (laughs) But I was just like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do, but we need to get the hell out of here because being stuck out here is, my phone's dead. I'm not going to be able to do anything. So um, I saw uh, Stacy, man. When Joel first saw Stacy, he didn't know her name. He just knew she was a middle-aged white lady with a picture of Michael Brown on her T-shirt. That, and she had a car. I mean, man, you know, you just you, you never know what you're going to end up remembering in life, and I'll never forget her. Wait, so you didn't know she was Stacy then? Why, when you no. saw this woman, why did you think, I'm just going to ask, can I can I get in your car? I don't know. Um, I, I, I mean, I would, God, I mean, again, just like what you know from being a black man in America, you just don't walk up on a white woman in a dark parking lot late at night. That's also a no-no. But I was, we were really, really desperate. By this point, Joel had found a friend in the crowd, another reporter. They were trying to get off the street together. Desperation will make you do anything, I guess. And uh, that's where we were. What'd you say to her? I think I just said, can you please help? (laughs) Can you please help? I said, we need a ride uh, to my hotel. And um, she said, get on in. Stacy? Yes. This is Mary. Hi. You don't we don't know each other, but hello. Um, I'm Joel always wondered what had happened with Stacy. He meant to buy her a cup of coffee, meant to find out a bit more about her kids. In the car that night, Stacy told Joel her children had been out protesting too. They're biracial. Their dad's incarcerated. Five years later, I had questions for Stacy about what made that night so hectic and also about whether anything had changed for her and her family. So one of my producers tracked her down on Facebook. Stacy, is that you? <laughs> How you doing, Joel? I'm good. It's good to hear from you all these years later. Wonderful, yes. I, did I ever tell you that I was a reporter? Did you, did, do you remember me telling you that, that I, I worked in news or anything? Yes, uh, you and the gentleman with you, both of you, is like we're news reporters. They won't let us get our vehicle. We're 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 stranded. Oh. <laughs> I was like, "Come on, get in!" <laughs> yeah, like yeah, okay. Strangers. <laughs> I I swear to you, I like, because I was still in Ferguson for you know a couple weeks after that, and I remember saying, "I've got to look." I don't even know if I had your number. I don't. I was just like, "I'm going to call Stacy." And thank her for saving my life. Every like I think about you like every, you know, few months. And I just be like, man, maybe I should give her a call, check in, see how she's doing. And then I was like, that'd be weird. I was like, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna let her go on. She didn't probably I didn't th- I didn't even think you remembered that, to be honest. So I did, unfortunately. It was a lot that night. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was the worst yeah. night of all of them, right? Mm-hmm. Sure was. That night, the 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 air, the air was so cloudy and dense Man. that there was there was people standing at Quick Trip said that they was just standing there, and the police started shooting them with rubber bullets and, and spraying tear grass for no reason. So. Yeah. <laughs> I had done laundry that day, so I had a basket of blankets and sheets in the back of my van. And we couldn't get on the main west floor, so I had to drive through people's yards to get out through the back alleyway. And there was a group of girls, teenage girls, that had been gassed, and their skin and their face was burning. So somebody was running up with milk, so I grabbed my sheets and they was pouring the milk on the sheets and wrapping the little girl up in the sheets because her skin was burning. Yeah. It was definitely something to remember the site. Yeah, I mean, it's if you was not there, you couldn't understand what was going on. It was something that I, I'm pretty sure everybody who's, who was there that night will remember. What brought you there that day? Um, I, I, I don't know. I can't answer that. I, I don't know. It, I had the kids there that day, and then for some reason I felt they needed to go home um, that evening. So I drove them all the way back home and then came back and felt the need to be there. Why were you there so late that night? It wasn't even really late, I guess, because like we, it was like <laughs> nine o'clock or something like that. So why were you still there? It's something that I see too often. People have been too quiet too long in this area about the police violence. I, I can go back to times when myself was uh, trying to move one of my cars off my children's father's property and police swarmed on us with assault rifles and all I was trying to do was move a vehicle and it was just me and my children and some gentlemen loading the vehicle up for me and they had my they had my children raise their hands like they were criminals as well um Mm. there's trust and believe there's amazing cops I, my son's role model is a cop. <laughs> His name is it's Rich Portwood. But there are cops out there who feel that it's okay to abuse their badge. And, and people are tired of, of others abusing and thinking it's okay because, oh, they're Black. We can do whatever we want. That, that People are tired of it. Do you... Yeah. Well, yeah, go ahead, Joel. Sorry, no, no, yeah. go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I well, was just going to ask her if the primetime barbershop was over. So, <laughs> so it's not an important question. Primetime barber has moved, by the way. I was going to ask you, okay, they did move. Okay, that was really about, yes. that was the follow-up question. <laughs> <laughs> they, they have oh, a new man. location. Talking to Stacy and Joel, they had this easy way about them. I could see why they trusted each other that night. But after we got off the phone... It wasn't just that night in Ferguson I couldn't get out of my head. It was the story Stacy told about her kids in the car with their hands in the air. Because this is the story that was in Stacy's mind as she peeled out of the parking lot with Joel. 
a story about how cops can look at you or look at your family and just see a suspect. And Joel? He had his own memory about a bad encounter with the cops. When we sat down for this interview, it was one of the first things we discussed. I've, and I, when I tell people this, people think that I'm lying, but it's absolutely the truth that I've been pulled over 40 or more times by the police in my life. And, Whoa. Um, and I remember one night, it was not long after I graduated from college, and I was driving back from Houston. I was working in Dallas. And so I was driving from Houston to Dallas. It was late at night. And I got stopped in this little town called Corsicana. And it's like, you know, maybe 11 o'clock at night. And the cops like come up to my car and they're like, do you mind if we search your car? And I'm just like, you know, sir, uh, I would prefer you not do that. And I think they were surprised that I knew Hmm. that I could tell them no. And uh, so they just held me like they just, you know, they, they, they took my driver's license went back to their car, they brought their dog out of their car and like just took it around my car. Like they would just, you know, <laughs> just walk it around. Because they can, right. And I was just, like, I remember getting home and crying that night. I was just, well, I was like, why are these dudes, me- like, why are they messing with me? I just wanted to get home. It was so frustrating. And um, I mean, I've had situations like that happen before. I mean, since then, but that was like one of the first times that I was just like, damn, man, when I'm out in the streets, when I'm driving around, some people don't care anything, anything that you would think, any of the things that you think make you who you are, that doesn't matter to some people. Like some police officers say, hey, that 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 kid looks like a suspect. And um, I never forgot that night. Obviously, I'm telling you about it now, almost 20 years later. Five years after the protests in Ferguson, I'd called Joel and Stacy to try to understand the images I remembered from that violent summer. Protesters with their hands up, police thwapping their batons, a city on fire. But there were other memories that were closer to the surface for them. Their personal histories, stories about police encounters gone wrong. Those weren't being live streamed or retweeted. Each building that was set on fire in Ferguson got tallied up the memories of the protesters and of Stacy and Joel, those were not. It made me wonder if the most important images from Ferguson's worst night were the ones I couldn't see. And that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to go back and check out our whole series on Ferguson. It aired last summer. You can find it wherever you listen to our show, or just click through the link in our show notes. This episode was produced back in August of 2019 by Jason DeLeon and Ethan Brooks. We're back tomorrow with another episode of What Next. Catch you then. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.